Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, I'm super excited for today's episode. I'm a big sports fan myself, so getting the opportunity to talk with the CEO of Collectible, Ezra Levine. Very excited to be here with him. Ezra, welcome. Thank you, Slava. And you, you and I have had a lot of dialogues in the past about investing in sports cars, and you're, you're not. You've also been featured, featured a lot on Collectibles podcast. So I think our audience uh, has certainly had the, uh, the pleasure of hearing a lot of your, your sports knowledge. And I believe we have, a, we have a conference. I don't know when this is going to go live, but Slava and I are actually on a panel together where we will be uh, making what I think is a pretty compelling case for collectibles as an asset class, especially sports ones at that. So uh, thrilled to be here. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about your new podcast launch, and uh, I think it's going to bring a lot of value to your audience. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is like basically one of our phone calls, but instead we're recording it. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, if we could just start, how, how did you get into alts? How did that even happen? That's always where we like to understand from our guests. Like, how did that even start? Well, I, I mean, I, I like to say I was sort of brainwashed into it, right? And you know, I was brainwashed into it at a time where they were not called alts, right? I mean, it wasn't, I think this term alt seems to have really been a fancy term, which seems to have become a lot more relevant over the last couple of years. I was introduced to quote unquote alts by my dad. And, you know, he called them just, you know, as he liked to call it, it was his hobby, right? So his hobby is now our alts. But, you know, he, he was a collector and still is a collector for, uh, for many, many years, dating back to the early 90s. And he started out, you know, collecting cards because he loved cards. He was a big Yankee fan, still is a Yankee fan. You know, loved Mickey Mantle, loved Babe Ruth. And so he would just collect anything Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth, and he would bring it home and he would show it to us. I collected cards, uh, you know, when I was a kid. But, you know, one thing always stuck out to me, my dad, and he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't really you know, in... Uh, in collectibles to make money, but he always said that, you know, almost as a, f- a funny byproduct, almost coincidentally, he always seemed like he made far more money in these quote unquote alts in his collectibles than he ever did in the, in the stock market. And he was, a, you know, he's a pretty astute investor as well. He said that there's, you know, a, a real sort of information asymmetry. If you know what you're doing and you, you, you buy quality, then there's a lot of money to be made. That, you know, that mentality and that sentiment always really stuck out to me. So, you know, my, my personal background was, again, you know, I was a sports fan all along. I, I collected cards when I was a kid, like, you know, I'm sure every other kid in America. I then found myself on Wall Street. So I was in the public markets for many years. Uh, while I was there, uh, I was at a hedge fund, which became a family office. The family office, uh, you know, sort of once it became a family office, we lost any mandate. So you could do whatever the hell you want to do whenever you want to do it. We started investing a lot of properties. I actually pitched an idea to co-found the minor league football league. The principal was dumb enough to do it, and we uh, ran that league for a couple of years, operated well, sold it to Fox Sports. And at that point, I was at this uh, a bit of a pivot in my career journey where I realized that I just had a lot more fun operating 
uh, you know, sort of a sports business than I did actually investing in them in the public markets. It was at, it was at that point that I decided to really explore uh, my next opportunities. I you know, was intrigued by the world of collectibles because I thought, you know, here's a multi, you know, here's a trillion dollar plus asset class that I believe will be much, much bigger down the road. But here's a trillion dollar plus asset class that, you know, historically uh, has been a really strong asset class to invest in. Uh, that has a ton of passion uh, investors in it, that has a ton of excitement within it, but there really hadn't been a lot of innovations. There certainly had not been you know, a real sort of financial market, if you will, created around it. I thought that was an obvious low-hanging fruit opportunity, but you had to create you know, a real consumer-friendly product. You had to really educate a lot of people into it. So that really brought me to Collectible, and, um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that shortly. What year are we talking about that you're uh, hanging out with your dad, buying some of these uh, cards, and at the same time, you know, stocks? What, what, what kind of period of time are we talking about? Well, I mean, he, he's been doing it since, I would say, the late 80s, early 90s. He's been doing it for a long time. And, you know, he's bought some amazing, amazing stuff. And it's funny, the, the idea for Fractional really became acutely obvious to me because he, he started to tell me about some of the things that he purchased. Obviously not you know, at today's valuations, but he said, you know, he owned some unbelievable stuff. He owned uh, one of the only 1951 Bowman Mantle rookie cards in a 10, in a 10. What? Right? But he sold it, but he sold it because he had three kids. He lived in New York City. He wasn't independently super wealthy. And so, but he would always buy the best of the best, hold on to it, appreciate it, and then he would sell it and then he would buy something else. So, you know, I keep here, I, I kept hearing about all these amazing, amazing assets that he had. So really quick, just for people that don't know, what's Bowman? What, what is that? Bowman, even? Bowman is, is one of um, the big card manufacturers, right? So, you know, you hear Tops, you hear Panini are the ones today. Bowman, I don't believe, um, you know, it's it, 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 it no longer sort of a standalone property at this point, but it, it's, it's a card manufacturing brand they were incredibly popular uh, in the 40s and the 50s. They were ultimately uh, essentially sort of uh, you know, overcapitalized by Topps. Topps stole their licenses, and Bowman essentially went out of business for many years. But Bowman was uh, essentially the Topps of, of the 1950s, and uh, they essentially have the, you know, the moniker of creating Mickey Mantle's official rookie card. Everyone talks about the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card. Uh, in a 10, that would go for anywhere between 25 to $50 million, largely considered the most expensive sports card if it were to sell today. But you know, the, the, the more forgotten actual rookie card is his 1951 Bowman. Right? And so my dad, and he's going to kill me for even saying this, but he had that card at one point. Again, I want to caveat, way back in the day, it was not worth nearly what it's worth today, but he had it. And, uh, you know, he said, look, if fractional, you know, fractional investing had existed back then, I, I might have sold some, but I would certainly retain some equity. So he loved that flexibility of being able to buy the best of the best or have, you know, an, an equity interest in the best of the best, but without the ability to uh, or, or, or the or the, you know, sort of knowledge or having to own the entire asset because he, you know, I'd say candidly, he would not be able to afford to own the entire asset today. And. Um, did your dad give you any guidance on how to invest in the stock market versus how to invest into these collectibles and cards? Meaning, how did he make the decision with the thousand dollars, where to put what, or what was the weighting in terms of his allocation? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when, when it comes to collectibles, he really taught me a couple things that, I mean, are just so, are so true, right? And it, it sounds so simple, but they're so true. Uh, it's condition, right? To, so always buy the best of the best. Uh, it's scarcity, which oftentimes those two things go hand in hand, right? If they're, you know, if they're in the best shape possible, there's only so many of them that are actually in that condition, right? But, uh, and it's, it's make sure to find liquid markets, right? And what he meant by liquid is that, you know, there are some players, some athletes, some moments that are just iconic, that will always have demand, whose brands will transcend time, will transcend generations. And so it's really those, you know, few things. When we think about, you know, some of the most valuable uh, cards or collectible assets in the world today, you could take the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle. We've, we've spoken about that a couple of times already, but that checks all the boxes, right? If you can get it above an eight, I mean, there, there's not that many of them out there, maybe 50 in the world. Uh, if you get a 10, there are only three of them in the entire world. Mantle's brand is one of the best in the world. Everyone thinks of the American dream and Mickey Mantle and handsome and young playing center field for the Yankees. Uh, and, then you, and then you think, you know, tops and scarcity and condition. So all those boxes are checked. So again, it's, you know, it's, it's scarcity, it's uh, liquid in the form of just making sure it's iconic and always in demand, make sure that, you know, the supply of it uh, will never, you know, sort of exceed demand for that asset and make sure to buy the, the, the best of the best in terms of the condition. And what do you mean by eight or a 10? So when I open a pack or my son opens a pack, does it have an eight or a 10 on it? Or how does that work? Yeah, so great, great question. So similar to the, the public markets, how there are grading agencies like S&P or Moody's who essentially evaluate the health of a business, uh, there are grading agencies within sports collectibles that evaluate the health of a collectible, right? You want the most healthy collectible you can possibly get. Um, that scale is on a numeric scale, one to 10. 10 is the best score you can possibly get. That's uh, and, and largely uh, the, the most rare and thus the most valuable. A one is, you know, essentially means that it's not, in, you know, it's not, it's not in good shape and it's probably, it's probably not that valuable and certainly not that rare. So again, you're looking for uh, items that, um, you know, are, are, are in really good condition and condition is measured by third-party grading agencies. And, uh, you know, the higher the grade, the better shape it's in, the, the more value that it, it has. So a bunch of listeners probably have cards in their mom's basement or still in their own basement or somewhere in the attic from grandpa or grandma. Uh, so do they have eights or tens or how does that work? Well, I would say chances are they have a lot less than an eight. But uh, so what happens is your cards are what's called raw. Right? So essentially, when they come straight out of a pack, when you rip them open, uh, they are raw because they are not graded and in any way, shape, and form. In order to get cards graded or get assets graded, you have to submit them to, again, one of those third-party grading agencies. There's a little bit of a lag time. I'll, I'll fully caveat that. But you know, there's a company called PSA, which I would consider to be the, the market standard, another called SGC, another called Beckett. Those are, are the three uh, companies that I think are the most popular and probably the most reputable grading agencies. So you can submit them to those companies and ultimately they will send you back with a grade. And you know, from, from, from that grade, that's, that's, that's largely where the value of the item uh, is, is, is sort of created and set. So before we dive more into the actual specifics of sports cards, and your point of views, I'd love to hear just more about you and your high-level opinions on the market. What do you think uh, about today's market? You have inflation going up, commodities going up. We're about to have you know, quantitative tightening. You have geopolitical issues. 
um, you know, compression in the multiples in public markets. It's a, it's a tricky market. What's, what's Ezra Levine's point of view on it? You, you paint a very rosy picture there, Slava. Well, look, I mean, are you asking about my, my view on the, on, the stock, on the public markets or my view on the alt markets overall? All of it. All of all it. All of it. However but, you would try to navigate today's market, whether it's, you know, just really your open-ended point of view on it. You could talk about, you know, uh, sports cards. You could talk about stocks. You could talk about real estate. You could talk about crypto. You could talk about hold it all in cash, put it all in Bitcoin. Just what's your thoughts on, you know, the market right now? I, th- I mean, look, I think we're, we're, we're in really, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a time uh, where there really is no analog for this market. So, and I, I learned after 10 years on Wall Street, I learned that the most difficult thing to do is predict what's going to happen next because, you know, generally, you know, you have pe- very high profile people who predict for a living and nine times out of 10, they're wrong. So the, the honest answer is I have no idea what's going to happen next. I do understand uh, that there are tried and true principles that, historically have worked to navigate difficult uh, climates in the past. You know, I think, you know, one, which is obvious, is to make sure that you're diversified. And so whether that's, you know, you you never want to have all of your eggs in one basket. There's all sorts of, uh, hang on, we'll we'll just wait for this to go by. You you never want to have all of your eggs in in one basket because you never know what sort of idiosyncratic risk that that particular asset has. You, you, you want to make sure uh, that you always have some cash. I mean, you know, personally as an investor, the worst feeling in the, in the world is praying that something's going to go up because you feel, you know, sort of overexposed to it. So I always like to kind of find that sweet spot for me personally where I'm happy, I'm thrilled if it goes up because that means I'm making money, but I'm also thrilled when it goes down if, if I believe in it because it means I always have a little dry power to buy more. So I always, I, you know, it's obviously a personal thing, but I always try to kind of find that sweet spot where I'm sort of happy either way. Uh, I think alts you know, certainly have a really interesting place uh, today in the world. Right? I, mean, I think a lot of people are looking for different uh, exposure types, which hopefully could be uncorrelated or loosely correlated to the broader markets. Um, you know, I think there's also, you know, lots of historical studies and articles which I've written that, you know, that in times like this, people tend to gravitate towards physical, tangible assets that they have some emotional connection to. Uh, there's been a lot of articles written about sports cards uh, in particular, how they've been a very resilient asset class. You can trace some of their uh, historicals back to, you know, to, to COVID, of course, back to the, the dot-com crash, back to 9-11, the terrorist. I mean, there's 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 plenty of analogs which have showed that uh, sports assets have have actually done incredibly well during times of macro stress. So to answer your question, I mean, I think, you know, a it's you know it's 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 making sure that you are uh, that you have exposure to enough different types of assets so that you know you're not overexposed to you know to to one to one particular risk. To make sure that you still have some cash in order to be able to buy dips, you're not you know sort of panicked if, if things continue to go a little lower. I think alts have a really interesting uh, place in it. But overall, I mean, I think you know the 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 saying always goes right is that it's not it's not timing the market which is important. It's the time in the market, right? So generally, when you're experiencing these types of corrections and this type of fear, this is generally not the time to liquidate. That's not to say it will go lower, but it's usually a time to just remind yourself that. You know, as long as you're investing in quality, you know what you own, and you've got the ability to, you know, to continue buying some dips if it goes lower, then you know it's 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 probably it's probably a better call to stick with it over long periods of time. Let's quickly talk about some of the other alt opportunities. What do you think about crypto? 
I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'll be completely candid. I'm not a huge crypto person myself. I have a little bit just for, I would say for almost schmuck insurance, just because I, I know what I know. I know where I'm good and I know what I'm not particularly good on. I don't personally have a strong view either way in crypto, but I obviously understand this is a big macro trend, which is taking shape. So generally what, what I do is when I see something really taking off and I've done this with NFTs and crypto, I, I buy a little bit just because I never, I never want my, my, my grandkids in 50 years, God willing, to be like, what the hell were you doing back in 2020 when everyone was making gazillion on crypto and you were sitting in the sidelines? So, and I also think it's a, it's a really interesting way to, to learn, right? You know, my, my view is that when you have skin in the game on anything, you tend to care more, you tend to educate more. So I always, I put a little bit in everything. So I do have some crypto exposure. Candidly, I have no personal strong opinion. Uh, I'm actually watching the crypto markets closely because I think uh, it, it'll be really interesting how, you know, how, how, how the regulatory and, you know, sort of environment shapes here, uh, shapes up here. Obviously, you know, we, we, we've seen some action recently uh, by the SEC as it relates to BlockFi and a couple of these companies. You know, I think it'll be really interesting just to see, you know, if, if things like, you know, sort of a spot ETF in Bitcoin develops, if the markets are ready for that. I believe they are. But, you know, I'm, I'm really watching more, more so for, for, for the regulatory guidance and for, and for, their, for their views than I am necessarily for how it's going to affect my uh, picture. Got it. And then how about any of the others, let's say art or debt or pre-IPO investments or early stage or real estate? Is, are any of these things things you focus on or you kind of stick to what you're good at and you know don't really try to expand beyond that? Yeah, I've I've a little bit of exposure to a lot of this. You know, it's not you know I again I, I typically you know go go deeper in the things that I really understand. Like I re, I think I really understand sports collectibles, right? So I personally am more comfortable, you know, sort of over allocating to that than I am something that I don't particularly have or feel like I you know I, I have an edge in. I do think art is similar to sports collectibles. There's you know there's a long history of this being a solid investment opportunity. You have seen that it has, you know, how it's acted during macro stresses. So, you know, I think, I think it's a really interesting, you know, asset to have some allocation to. Uh, I do have some real estate exposure. Um, you know, I've got some commodity exposure across the board, right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm exposed to a lot of these, but again, you know, I personally don't think I have, I have an edge in, in a lot of those asset classes that you, you mentioned, you know, in, in terms of early stage investing, I'm, I'm obviously heavily exposed to that just by virtue of the fact that I'm, you know, a CEO of an early stage company. So I would say a lesser allocation there, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I do think in general, you know, purely from an educational standpoint, having some skin in the game is really the best way to learn. If you want to learn about art, I think, you know, if you invest a couple bucks into masterworks, you'll probably learn more than if you don't, right? So, you know, I, I think I think having a little skin in the game is just a really interesting sort of uh, growth hack to, 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 to educating yourself on emerging, interesting, potentially very lucrative opportunities. Great. So let's now dive into what you do much of the day, which is focused on fractional ownership and, and collectible. So... Um, can you start by just explaining to folks what is fractional ownership? I feel like this is a pretty new concept that five years ago people weren't really talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very similar concept, obviously, to what people I think are very familiar with on the public markets, right? So in the public markets, you could be a shareholder in Facebook, right? So you can own five shares of Facebook, the company. You're obviously not the CEO. You're not on the board. You don't own. You don't. You know. You're you're, you're nothing more than just sort of an, an LP, an individual shareholder in Facebook. 
but yet you are entitled to your pro rata percentage of the profits and, and all that good stuff, right? So you literally are an, an, an equity uh, holder in Facebook, the business, even though you don't have more, you know, you, you know, more responsibility than that. Same concept really applies to fractional ownership of collectibles, right? We take iconic uh, sports collectibles, sports cards, sports memorabilia, what have you. Uh, we literally create a company out of it. And then we offer shares in those companies to the public. So in the same way you could buy shares of Facebook, you can buy shares of Babe Ruth uh, or Mickey Mantle or Michael Jordan. We also have essentially a little mini stock market for sports collectibles where in the same way you can buy, you know, sell and trade interest in Facebook on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, 9, 9.30 to 4 o'clock. You can buy shares of, of those sports icons essentially from 9.30 to 4 o'clock on collectibles as well. So... I'm sure you get this question, so I'll just tee it up. Why would I buy fractional and not just buy the whole thing? And I, I can't get out. Do I get to hold the card if I buy a fraction of it? You, you do not get to hold the card physically, uh, but you are a real equity a holder of it. You will see it digitally in your account on collectible. You'll see the prices uh, fluctuating, going up, hopefully going up more than going down. But it's, it's, a, it's a market like, like anything else. Um, you know, why, why, well, I mean, you know, look, we, we've, there, there's a really interesting thesis and the, the, the data really supports it is that the real money is made in collectibles in the investment grade assets, right? Where, uh, where there's tons of demand, where demand exceeds supply, where it's in great shape as, you know, as, as earmarked by PSA, Beckett, you know, that's just any of those grading companies we, we stated. Here's, here's the rub, right? The rub is that uh, it's largely out of reach for all but you know, a very small percentage of investors who could afford to do it, right? And so what Collectible has done is essentially create a market structure where everyone over the age of 18 today, just in the US, but soon over, anyone over the age of 18 all across the world can get exposure to this asset class, liquid exposure to this asset class uh, in the same way how, how they can do so with stocks. There is also an, an, you know, an incredible unlock which Collectible has brought to the market for collectors, for asset holders, right? And that, that really is the flexibility to uh, sell or monetize partial positions in their collectibles. So it's, you know, if we go back to that Facebook example, you, you may have bought you know, 100 shares of Facebook on the IPO, hell of a trade. You're probably feeling like a schmuck for, you know, for about six months, and then it's, it's gone up a lot ever since. But you, know, you may have bought it at 20 bucks, and now it's at 200 wherever it is. You, you might want to sell you know, a partial stake in it, but you still might believe Facebook go up over time. Right? So you can sell you know, 10 shares, 50 shares, however many shares you want at today's market conditions, keep and retain the balance and sell those over time as well. That had never existed in the world of collectibles, right? The, the, the ability to sell before was you sell all of it at auction or eBay or what have you, uh, or, or you sell none of it, right? And so what collectible has enabled the market is for uh, asset uh, holders and owners to sell partial stakes so they can sell 50%, 25%, 75%, you, any, any sort of combination there works. And what's like the, the price of an asset that makes it interesting to become fractional as opposed to just buying it yourself sort of thing? You have like an average price point of view there? So our, our, our average price of assets on the platform is somewhere around 150 to, 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 to 200,000. Uh, the, the, the lowest price that really makes sense for fractionalization. I just want to jump in there real quick, just so people understand. So your cards or your gloves or your bats, the average price is like 150 to $200,000 each. 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 Yeah, that's you got. It. I think that's a little mind blowing. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, the, these very much are financial instruments. There's a, a multi-billion dollar market out there for these things. Uh, again, it's scarcity, it's rarity, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the fact that these are iconic, right? And so, yeah, the, these, are, these are really treasured assets, which more and more price points continue to rise. Uh, and oh, you know, as, a, as a really interesting byproduct of that, you know, larger institutional capital and larger individual capital has taken notice of rising price points. You almost have this sort of acceleration effect where the, the, the higher the price points go, the more money is able to actually, um, you, know, you know, sort of scalably, scalably invest in them. So a, a really interesting study there. Um, but back to the, to the original question, right? So, uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 minimum, the minimum that really makes sense for fractionalization, I would say, is 15000 Anything under 15000 it's just not worth anyone's time. Uh, and the, the, the average price point is somewhere between one hundred and fifty dollars uh, to, to $200,000. And why now? Why is this happening now? And why did this accelerate so rapidly through COVID? So, you know, my, my personal view is that COVID was an accelerant, but it was not, it wasn't the underlying cause, right? If you look at, if you look, if you look back, you know, even a couple of years prior to COVID, there had all, you know, all these trends had been taking shape. You had the rise of the modern, of the modern card as a result of sort of manufactured scarcity from manufacturers. Essentially, what that means is, you know, the, this is very much a demand supply industry, right? When demand exceeds supply, you get rising prices. When uh, the, the opposite is true, you get lowering of prices. The card manufacturers, which is really sort of like the root of where all these new uh, modern cards uh, are created, uh, unfortunately oversupplied the market, which had downward pressure on pricing. As soon as they realized that <clears throat> it was actually better marketing for the industry and they could potentially even make more money by, you know, kind of saying, hey, look, there's only going to be five of these, only one of these, only 25 of these, 50 of these, 100 of these, whatever you, know, you want to say, uh, that actually led to rising, rising prices. Right? Uh, you had, you know, you had some investor types come in, you had people looking for, you know, for alternative investments. Um, but, you know, but really what happened was, is that, you know, COVID accelerated the trend of rising collectibles, right? People, again, were getting buried in the stock market. People didn't know what to make of that. People were looking for safe havens that they could you know, invest with confidence or tangible vehicles uh, that they knew what they owned and you know, that they loved. If, 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 if all else went to fail, if you know, all prices all went to zero, at least here you have something that you love and you care about and brings you joy and brings you back to a simpler time. So, you know, it's been a really interesting confluence of events. The easy read is that you know this is a COVID fuel boom that's you know that's that's about to collapse. I think that's the exact wrong read. I think if anything, uh, it brought awareness to a trend that had already been emerging for years to come. A trend that had led to uh, real talent coming into this industry, real investment coming in, into the industry. You have uh, massive companies, the likes of Fanatics and Blackstone and Amazon. And Stevie Cohen, Nat Turner, you've got massive uh, people who are in it now. And so I think you're just you're seeing, uh, you know, a real acceleration of capital, talent, awareness, uh, and technology and regulatory environment, which is making for, uh, for the first time ever, a real liquid, exciting market where big money can be deployed with confidence. So you just like reeled off some names and words that maybe not everybody knows, but you said like Fanatics and PSA and Nat and all this stuff. Fanatics, um, you know, just raised like at a $27 billion valuation. You're an insider. Tell us what does Fanatics mean to you and what does this mean for the industry? 
Yeah, so for content, so, so Fanatics uh, is, is a, a very prominent name within sort of licensed apparel within sports, right? So if you're, if you're a fan, for instance, of the, of the Cincinnati Bengals, right, you could have, uh, you know, as soon as the, the Bengals won the AFC Championship, you could have rushed out probably either online or physically and purchased literally probably two minutes later a, you know, sort of an AFC Championship hat or shirt, which was printed uh, and, you know, and, and given out by Fanatics, right? So Fanatics has a huge household name. They've got a huge Rolodex uh, and a huge customer base of sports fans. Uh, what they've done is they've essentially uh, gotten a monopoly on the, the sport card manufacturers, right? So their, their biggest move was acquiring Tops. Tops is a real legacy brand, probably one of the best brands, if not the best brand within sports cards. They also, uh, you know, have have, a, have an NFT platform. So not only are they in physical cards, they're also in digital ones. Um, they are essentially trying, just like Collectible is, they are trying to bring the industry into the next level of growth. Right? They uh, think that by patching in sports cards, making them cool and relevant, and you know, and bring awareness and marketing to the the 90 million sports fans that they already have. Uh, bring you know, all the athletes and you know, the, the, the league's endorsements, that sports cards will become relevant and cool uh, and looked at as alternative assets in ways that this narrative has never been spun before. So, you know, my, my view here is I think they're incredible for the market. I think they're absolutely incredible for the market. You know, I think for Collectible, our company, I think they're, you know, a really interesting partner to kind of help shape the future of the industry. You know, I think Collectible can, you know, luckily ride the marketing dollar coattails that they're willing to, to spend to the market to tell a very similar story that Collectible has been telling for a couple of years. But, you know, ultimately, look, I think you're going to see companies who really have uh, both market savvy and technology uh, and access to new participants bring new products and new ways of collecting or investing in collectibles in ways that this mar that this industry has never seen before. So it's yet another reason why we are incredibly bullish. You've got, you know, real investment dollars coming into it. You have new technologies which are eliminating barriers to entry. You've got companies that are reducing education gap. And, you know, you have real marketing dollars which are going to be, you know, spinning a very positive narrative in this industry for years to come. While we're uh, talking about the industry overall, very recently, one of the other players in the collectible space called Otis just got acquired. They just announced their acquisition um, by Public, so public.com, which is kind of like a Robinhood competitor, which was really fascinating uh, because, you know, like Robinhood, they offer opportunities to trade into equities and crypto. What do you, what do you think about that acquisition? What does that say for the market? Uh, we don't have to talk about the specific company per se, but rather, what does this say for the market and your opinions on where this is headed? Yeah, and look, I think I think it was a directionally correct, uh, you know, move by public. Right, I think you know what what a lot of these companies I believe are going to see, and not just you know the, the the sort of retail brokerage side, but I think you know the the, the larger wealth management uh, types are are getting demand uh, today, but we'll get continued demand for different types of alternative uh, products to be included in you know, their, their service offerings, right? So what Republic is now the first one to essentially be able to offer is on one exchange, the ability to invest in stocks, bonds, cryptos, and collectibles, right? So you know, I think as, you know, if all of us here believe that collectibles has some you know, allocate or is worthy of an allocation in your holistic financial picture, public can now go out there and bang their, ch their chest and say, hey, look, you can do all that here 
on, on our platform, right? So I think that's directionally correct. I mean, I read in, you know, a really interesting study by Deloitte who publishes this art and finance uh, report every single year. I would highly recommend your audience reading it. I think if you're interested in collectibles, even if it's not art specifically, it gives you really good insights into how people are thinking about collectibles as investments. Uh, you know, one, one, of the, one of the studies which struck me was that, you know, about eight in 10 of, or eight out of 10, I should say, eight out of 10 wealth managers that are polled. And by the way, it's hard to get, and it's hard to get eight out of 10 people to agree on anything. It's hard to get eight out of 10 people you know, to agree that we should order pizza for dinner, right? But eight out of 10 people agreed that collectibles uh, are a worthy allocation in someone's holistic financial portfolio and picture. Right? So if 8 out of 10 ultra high net worth wealth managers are, are thinking that, the, the next logical step is, well, how do we deploy that money? Where do we get liquid exposure to it? Right? The, the pain points of collecting and insuring individual pieces is, is too high for these, you know, for these asset allocators. So they're looking for liquid exposure to be able to deploy capital with one click of a button. Right? I think that's what public, public is essentially trying to create is an avenue to get large-scale exposure into collectibles uh, and to have all that being offered under one roof where you can get stocks, bonds, uh, funds, crypto, collectibles, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I think a directionally correct move. Uh, I do not think that's going to be the, the only move that you see of, of, of likeness in this category. So riffing off that, putting Ezra on the spot, is Robinhood going to do that in the next 18 months, one version or another? I'm not sure, but look, I think I think it'd be smart for them to do. I do think it'd be smart for them to do. You know, I think I think the the challenge with collectibles today, right, is that there's not enough scale yet, right? And I say yet, right, because yet it's only a matter of time until companies like Collectible or Rally or any of these other companies can really you know, aggregate enough scale and enough AUM so that it really makes sense for a company like Robinhood or Public or any of these to really deploy you know, resources and time and money into offering that, that as a solution to their clients, right? So, you know, I think, I think it, it's, it's really a scale game. Uh, I, I know, you know, we are certainly building towards that. I'm sure Rally is doing the same. Uh, I, but I do think directionally, you know, these larger firms are going to have to get allocations or figure out a way to allocate uh, into collectibles because it's something that people obviously want and people believe is, uh, is smart for their holistic financial picture. The 8 out of 10 point was super interesting. And when I think about collectible and, and the listeners are hearing you talk, should they be thinking about their $1,000 investment on collectible or their whatever investment on collectible as trading like a three-month position? Or should they be thinking about it as like a buy and hold five or 10-year position? And I think you might say both, but like, what are you seeing from your audience and what would you advise? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I would say I would say both, and I'll also caveat this by saying I'm really not able to give securities advice. So anything I say is is not is not secure is totally not securities advice in any way, shape, and form. But um, look, you know, I think again, you know, the the thesis is is that sports collectibles are a good long term asset class. They have a lot of interesting benefits to your portfolio. Uh, they're largely uncorrelated to the market. They uh, have, you know, have, have been historically higher yielding investments if properly curated. Uh, there's never really been a liquid dynamic marketplace before, but we were now creating one, right? So, you know, I certainly, uh, when we, you know, kind of went through and created Collectible, we certainly had long-term orientation in mind. Uh, the, all the assets that are on Collectible 
for the most part, are you know long-term theses that we expect to play out. We've had the benefit of having a lot of these theses play out uh, in short periods of time, which I think sometimes you know is a bit of a spoiler or kind of spoils certain investors on the platform. That if it's not you know three x within two days, then it's a bad investment, right? But um, you know, I think. I mean, I, I certainly think long term, you know, I think Collectible is certainly building uh, new products and new vehicles, which we'll uh, soon announce that I think will dramatically simplify the, the experience for a lot of newcomers into the market. We're trying to create products which, you know, your, your thesis really has to be probably two pronged. If you have a two pronged thesis, I think you, you, you can really spend and invest with confidence. Right? One is, do you, do you believe in the sports collectibles market? Yay or nay? If the answer is yes, great. You, you graduate to step two. Step two is, do you believe it in a particular athlete or a particular theme, right? So maybe it's, do you believe Michael Jordan's brand will continue, you know, will, will continue to stay relevant over time? And do you believe that the sports collectibles market will continue to stay relevant and increase in time? If both those answers are yes, we've got a great product for you, right? And we're going to try to make it as easy as we possibly can uh, and also create products that are institutionally scalable, right? I think scale, scale, scale is the name of the game. So uh, at the end of the day, I would certainly have a long-term orientation. There definitely are short-term opportunities. There definitely are a lot of users who are looking at Collectible as a trading platform where they can buy, sell, and trade. But again, you know, the the uh, the architects of the of the product certainly have a longer-term orientation in mind. Got it. And then um, a CEO you have so much information coming across your, you know, your mind in terms of seeing all the trends, the deal flow, like who's selling, who's not selling, what's hot, what's not. Can you give us like two or three trends that are happening at the moment for our listeners that, you know, from your viewpoint? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's a, that's a, a really good question. So without sort of, you know, without wading into securities territory or giving securities advice or anything like that, I mean, I would say, you know, very, very broad strokes. Uh, one is that people continue to have, uh, you know, real interest in the icons, right? So, you know, think Michael Jordan, think Jackie Robinson, think of, of people and personalities and brands that truly transcend sport, transcend time, trend that we pass along from generation. You know, I think a, a good mental filter is, will, will, your grand, will your grandchildren in 30 years know who this person is? If yes, that person is probably investable, right? And that investability, uh, you know, one terrific way to gain exposure to that legacy and that investability is through collectibles, right? So I think that's a good mental model. Will this person be relevant in 30 years? If so, they are investable. If the odds, eh, then I, th- I, think, I think that's a good mental filter for you. Um, you know, on the, you know, one, one interesting trend certainly has been the, the rise of soccer, right? I think soccer, you know, certainly has been something which caught a lot of people off guard, but obviously we're seeing uh, whether it's demographical shifts or whether it's, you know, sort of shifts in, in the way people collect or think about collecting or the rise of international for collecting. You know, there's certainly a lot of uh, interest and dollars flowing into soccer as a category. I do expect that to, <clears throat> to even accelerate further as we get closer to the World Cup. So guys like Ronaldo, even Mbappe, you know, all those Messi, of course, all those, all those athletes, Pele, are, are, are seeing real interest. And then third, you know, I'd say is, is the rise of game-worn memorabilia, right? So game-worn memorabilia has been a much smaller, nichier audience. The authentication and grading standards have not been commoditized as well. Each item is essentially a one-of-one, which makes comparable analysis a little difficult. But you are seeing people who 
are essentially looking for for safe haven trades, right? And people who are looking for, you know, kind of like a value proposition. So they're saying, how the hell is this Mickey Mantle, you know, card worth two million dollars? But this jersey that Mantle wore, you know, in 1951, rookie, how is that? How is that a fourth of the price, right? So you're seeing people, you know, kind of look across the the spectrum, compare prices in cards to prices of other assets. And seeing, you know, kind of where 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 values are still cheap, right? So one place is certainly game used memorabilia. So I expect that trend to accelerate uh, over the next couple of years as well. A riff off of the game used is um, a ticket. So getting access to like the premier ticket of Pele or Jordan or whoever for the longest time that was kind of an irrelevant asset, yep. and more recently like the numbers are becoming like crazy. I mean, this is really an insider discussion right now. Yep. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a Jordan, you know, uh, premier ticket or Jackie Robinson, et cetera. I know this is hard for you to answer, but are we looking at like a fad that, you know, the numbers will over time be good, but right now this is a crazy bubble or do you think this is warranted these crazy prices on tickets? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my my personal view here is that it is warranted, right? And I think it's warranted for for a couple of reasons, but primarily because you have the market structure of cards essentially in place, right? So you know, we think about it. You know, there is the ability to properly analyze to analyze supply and demand, right? So, and when I say supply, you know, how many at a certain grade are there? There's something you know in, in the world of collectibles called a population report. A population report, all it tells you is how many of these in a certain grade are there in the world, right? And so PSA, who's the leading authenticator of tickets, has a population report for tickets. So you can see how many Michael Jordan debut tickets there are, how many Jackie Robinson debut tickets there are, right? So the, the, the fact that that structure exists where someone could say, holy cow, right? There's two of these Jackie Robinson debut tickets in the world. Everyone knows Jackie Robinson, right? Everyone, like you can almost imagine yourself at Ebbets Field and, you know, the energy in the crowd and, you know, the, the attention. On, like, I, I, I see it, right? I mean, I, and I remember when Heritage recently had the, the Jackie Robinson debut. It, it sold for almost, you know, I think it was a half a million dollars. I, I felt it, right? I felt that emotional connection to that ticket. I didn't buy it. I couldn't afford it. Collectible didn't get it, unfortunately. We wanted it. But, um, you know, we, I felt that connection to this ticket. I felt the rarity. I felt the attachment to the underlying moment, the underlying athlete. So I think if people feel it in cards, they, sh they should feel it in tickets. I mean, the only difference, as I see it, is that, you know, the liquidity in the uh, card market is much, 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 much greater than it is in tickets, right? The ticket community today is a fraction of the size of the card community. So as long as there are liquidity avenues and the community of ticket believers continues to grow, I think these will. Be, I think over time, these will actually prove to be incredible investments. Thanks for entertaining that question. So you just know so much about sports and collectibles. If we wanted to try to be as smart as you, which will be challenging, what is it that you're listening to? What is it that you're watching? What is it that you're reading? What, what are some of those places that you like to go that you know, our listeners can copy you? So I'm, I'm really glad that you, you, you asked this question for, for, for one clear reason, right? Uh, the honest answer is I don't think it exists today. Right. So, you know, for, for context for your listeners, when I was getting back into this market, I had the benefit of learning a lot from my dad and from a lot of his friends who've been in the market. But, you know, I was candidly struggling to find resources that I really thought 
were you know great resources that get me to feel confident spending money and investing money in this category. Right? This was one of the reasons why Collectibles Content Division launched furiously and why we spend a lot of money <clears throat> to kind of educate our community in terms of kind of how to think about the market, different opportunities within the market. That, that all changed for me uh, on almost sort of a stroke of coincidence when I stumbled upon a guy by the name of Joe Orlando's teachings, right? Joe Orlando, for a little context, is uh, he now, now works for Collectible as a spoiler alert, but you know, he previously was the CEO of PSA, who is the largest grading company in the category. And Joe uh, had a blog, which went out every month. He recorded videos on YouTube, and he, he's, he's, a, he's, a very, uh, you know, he's a very well-published author of a bunch of books on how to invest in memorabilia. But, you know, in this day and age, it was hard to kind of gain access to that or find where those were. And I, I didn't see them for, for, for many months and even a couple of years. As soon as I found Joe's teachings, Joe had a way of kind of simplifying uh, core tenets that allowed you to really believe in the market and to really get comfortable with the market and to invest and collect wisely. All right, so I did every, everything in my power to kind of cultivate that relationship with Joe because my feeling was that if Joe could do this for me, if he could make me feel a certain way, then holy hell, he could do this for millions of people and bring millions of not just retail investors but institutional you know, managers into this category because he had a way of communicating complex subjects and making them digestible and understandable. Right? So when Joe became a free agent, uh, I did everything in my power to lock him up and to convince him to join Collectible. He was dumb enough to have accepted the offer. So he's now working for Collectible and one of the very first principles, the very first tasks we're going to be doing is creating the exact type of content that I wanted, that Joe has been able to deliver, that I, we think will really add value to people in sort of thinking about the market, in, in investing in confidence, building those mental models, mental frameworks. And ultimately, as a result of that, you will develop a passion for the material, just the way I did, you know, and a lot of other people have too. You will develop a love of the material, and I'm, I'm sure Slava can agree. It's really fun. It's, re it's not that hard to learn. You just have to invest a little bit of time. And it's potentially very, very lucrative. So I would highly suggest uh, you know, your, your audience, once, once that content comes out, watch it, read it, all that stuff. It's really fun. You'll like it. You'll love it. Uh, and uh, if it means you, you, you invest more in collectible, I will not be upset about that either. So outside of collectible, when you wake up in the morning or you're, you know, have 20 minutes available, what, what else are you reading or looking at? What, like any things that are showing you the signal that you're getting a little bit of an edge? You know, what sites are you looking at? Um, anything you can share? So in the, in the world of sports, right? I mean, you know, I, there, you know, I think, I think sport, sports, uh, sports co co collectors digest and daily do a really interesting job of kind of just general market recaps. I think a company called Card Ladder does a really interesting job of just kind of providing, you know, sort of uh, updated pricing on a lot of assets. So I think, I think those are good content sources. We have uh, a daily podcast hosted by Alan Goldshire. Slava's been a guest numerous times, who I think does a really good job of kind of bringing on interesting guests. In the world of financial markets, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on, you know, all those morning brew type of emails, right, which kind of give you a synopsis. Uh, I used to work on Wall Street, so I still get a lot of broker reports and kind of summaries every morning to my personal email. They've been, they've, they've been nice enough to kind of keep me on some of those listservs. So I still get, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of sell side summaries and sell side. So I, I look at those uh, a lot. Um, 
you know, I, I listen to Animal Spirits podcast a lot. I think I think they do a really good job of of kind of kind of kind of giving you the news of the day without you know kind of over you know sort of oversaturating it, and it's enjoyable and fun. So so those are, are sort of some of the sources. But you know, within our within our category, uh, and I'm, I'm not just being biased here, but I think Collectible actually does a really good job also of kind of keeping people up to date on on key, on key market trends and news that really kind of matter in that, in that particular moment. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So as a final question, you're going to say, you know, I don't give securities device, advice, so you're going to try to avoid answering it. But my, <laughs> my question is to put you on the spot, which is, uh, you know, I have $1,000 or I have $10,000. Mm-hmm. And where should I be putting that money right now if I want return in three to five years? Yeah. Again, so without without kind of wading into you know any, any kind of securities advice here. Look, I, I think I think you you invest the money in the iconic athletes, the iconic brands, right? So you know my head immediately goes to Jackie Robinson. I think Jackie Robinson is one of the best bets on the board for a whole host of reasons. But you know, again, when you when you hear the name Jackie when you hear the name Jackie Robinson, every single person in the world knows who Jackie Robinson is. And they might not know that he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers or you know he was a great baseball player or that he won the MVP. But you know the brand, right? And you know the cultural and historical relevance of that. And when you take that knowledge and you apply it to well, how is he being valued in the collectibles market? He's actually being valued at a substantial discount to a guy like Mickey Mantle, right? So that to me doesn't seem proper or right. I think more people would know who Jack Robinson is than Mickey Mantle. So you know, it's 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 that type of thing. So if I had to give one person, I'm not, I won't give specific assets, but if I could give one person, one uh, athlete who I think is really money good, you know, from an investing standpoint in collectibles, I think it's I think you can invest in Jackie Robinson with confidence. I love that. Can I challenge you for one more athlete? Of course. One, one more athlete. Um, one more. Ath- well, I mean, the, the, the obvious answer is Jordan, right? I don't think Jordan's ever going out of style. The, my only hesitation with Jordan is because uh, when Jordan was rising to prominence, you know, his collectibles were, were in greater supply than Jackie Robinson. So not only is it who is the, the underlying iconic athlete, sometimes you have to look at, well, the era in which that person was playing, you know, what, what was the supply dynamics like? So my only hesitation with Jordan is just that he came out in the 80s and early 90s when there was a lot of supply. But uh, look, I think, I think Jordan, Jordan is money good over time as well. Uh, one, one athlete who I, who I might say, I mean, I might say, again, just I noted it at the top of this podcast, right, that um, that soccer is one of the big trends you're seeing. I think soccer will continue to gain in popularity. Uh, soccer prices are still deeply, deeply, uh, you know, sort of cheap relative to other sports. Soccer is the most popular sport in the world. You look at, you know, things like social media followers, some of the, the soccer athletes and stars, um, you know, have some of the, the, the most social media followers out of not, not just athletes, out of anyone in the entire world. A guy like Ronaldo has almost a half a billion followers. And that's not just fans or people who know who he is. That's people who have actually taken the time to click follow on social media platforms. So chances are his name recognition is even greater than that. So, you know, I might look to guys like Ronaldo. I mean, I think Pele, obviously you're seeing Pele, who has already set the record for most expensive soccer card in the world. But again, I would think soccer as a sport, and then who are the icons within soccer whose name and brand really transcends sports? I think Pele, I think Ronaldo, I, I'm, I might even throw a Messi into that mix, but I think, I think it's those types of 
athletes, and certainly soccer as a sport that I'd, that I'd be interested in right now. That's an incredible way to end it. Thank you so much, Ezra. This has been, uh, you know, incredible conversation, starting from your dad's Bowman 10 to, I really like that quote, it's not the amount of time in the market. It's not how you time, it's not how you time the market, but it's the amount of time in the market. And then, as you mentioned, the rise of soccer and looking at Jackie Robinson. Thank you, Ezra, for joining us, and we look forward to doing it again. Thank you for, for having me on. This has been a lot of fun, Slava. Thanks again. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.